0: All right, it is a blessing to have each of you with us today just to be able to celebrate God's Word, and we are going to spend some time in the Scriptures today. In fact, I'm going to tell you already, we're going to be hopping back and forth between various Scriptures. Uh, Most of what I will look at today will come from James chapter 5, so if you want to turn there, you can already, or you could actually jump down to 1 Kings chapter 18, which is the first place that I will end up with you today. Let me start with a little bit of an illustration, backstory to why I want to talk about this. Um, A while back in the early days of the COVID-19 battle, I met a young man from Turkey. I immediately asked him what brought him to the United States, and he replied that he came here for work. Of course, the natural follow-up question was, well, what kind of work do you do? His response was, I am a healer. I wanted to respond with a real quick, well, me too. (laughs) But instead, I decided to probe just a little bit more. So I asked him to tell me about it. You know, like, uh, do do you just pray over them? Is this God who is doing the healing and you're just the vessel? Or can anybody do this kind of healing? He was very clear that this was not a faith-based thing and that he did not believe in a God who could do such things. By the way, he did not know that I was a pastor. Instead, he declared that all people have a certain energy within themselves that allows them to heal other people. They just need to learn how to use it according to what he had to say. Before I poke holes In all of his theories, let me just say that there have always been individuals like this who sought to be agents of power, yet they had no connection to the all-powerful, almighty God. We see in the Old Testament, as Moses stands before Pharaoh, remember how the sorcerers and the magicians were able to imitate the feats of Moses, at least to a point. For example, they were able to turn their staffs into serpents, much like Moses had done, although it was Moses' serpent who actually swallowed up all of their serpents before that event took finished. I've often wondered if Moses' staff felt just a little bit heavier when he walked out that day. And then you have those who thought their gods were powerful, only to find that they were completely absent. 1 Kings 18 tells of Elijah and his showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Each party was given a task of calling upon their respective gods and inviting them to come and consume a sacrifice. Well, Elijah, being the gentleman that he was, he allows the prophets of Baal to go first. And look what happens in verses 26 through 29. 1 Kings 1826 to 29 says this. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a God. Perhaps he is daydreaming or is relieving himself, or maybe he is away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be awakened. So they shouted louder and following their normal customs, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response." You have to appreciate the humor of Elijah here. He knew that Baal wasn't really going to show up. He was an absent, powerless God with a little g. But if we were to read on further in this passage, we will see that when Elijah prays to God, God immediately responds, consuming the sacrifice with fire. The difference was that one prayed to a powerful, almighty God, and the other prayed to an absent, powerless God. This individual that I met, while he may think that he's able to do great things, without the power of God, he is powerless. And I would suggest to you today that without the power of God in your own life, you yourself are powerless. You see, it is God who enables us to do abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. Let me pause right here to address something very important with you. It is so easy for us to look upon others who have misplaced their faith and pass judgment on them. But the truth is that many of us are not all that different from such individuals. For example... Look at the first few verses in James chapter 5. We may may not put our misplaced faith in Baal, but maybe we've put it in people or maybe even money. It says, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 4, Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away. And your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver, they're corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated on their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. We live in a culture that is all about the dollar. It's all about making a little bit more money, our search for prosperity at any cost. Please don't get me wrong. I love the fact that we live in a capitalistic society. Capitalism leads to innovation, to hard work, and to creativity. But capitalism, left unchecked, can become a scourge as the haves begin to oppress those who have not. I'm going to stretch your thinking for a moment here. I know that we've been taught that it is better to have it and not need it rather than to need it and not have it. But what if I told you that the best place for an individual to be is in the place of need? You see, far too often we have mistakenly believed that somehow we have become self sufficient. We no longer need help. We have enough money to take care of all of our needs and perhaps even our emergencies. But no matter what you have, you will always need God. When we reach that point where we no longer recognize the need for God in our lives because we are sufficient on our own, that is a horrible and is a dangerous place for us to be. You see, our money will one day run out. Our money will bring pleasure and comfort for a time, but eventually it won't be enough. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. You see, the best place for us to turn in the midst of a trial or just daily life is to God. We are in the best position when we admit that we are powerless to fix our own problems and we are forced to surrender fully to God instead. I've often said that the greatest gift to humanity is desperation. In moments of desperation, we tend to call out with passion, with a fervency, realizing that we don't have what it takes on our own, but God does. Let me ask you today, have you developed a misplaced faith? Are you trusting in money, in a job? Maybe you're trusting more in the people around you. Maybe you're trusting in your government. Or are you fully trusting in God to provide for your every need? Understand, this does not address the need for us to be hardworking and creative. I told you those are good things, and we still need to do those kinds of things. But our trust must be fully based in who Jesus Christ is, knowing that he is more powerful than we could ever imagine. So why not turn to him to meet all of our needs? Let's continue with our passage here in James. We just looked at a few verses Verse 7 introduces us to the importance of patience as we trust, as we place our trust in God. This can be applied in multiple ways within our lives. The first is in regard to the second coming of Christ. In fact, this is probably the application that the author originally intended as James chapter 5 is written. It says in verses 7 and 8, dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. This is an important point as we often pray for a temporary fix to our problems. But the problem with a temporary fix is it's temporary. Duh, we know that, right? The eternal fix to today's problem will go beyond meeting the immediate need. We don't just need the courts to make a specific decision. We don't just need an infusion of cash. We don't just need a medical miracle. We need God to usher in a new era for humanity. We need Jesus Christ to return, judging the earth and putting a stop to all of the brokenness that takes place around us all the time. I want you to know that if God fixes a temporary problem for you today, there'll be another one that will come. There'll be another temporary problem, and maybe it's not going to be exactly the same. Maybe it won't have to do with money this time. Maybe it'll be a medical need. Maybe it'll be a relationship that isn't what it needs to be. But what I can tell you is that Every temporary problem will eventually come back, unless God gives us the eternal fix. The problem is that we've been waiting for Christ's return, though, for centuries. Even in the early church, people were looking for Christ's return. But Jesus said, no man knows the day nor the hour. And in 2 Peter 3, 9, we're told that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, As some understand slowness, instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We may not know when the day of Christ's return will take place, but I assure you that it will happen. And in that day, we'll experience an eternal change, not a temporary one, an eternal change. We're not talking about a short-lived respite from the problems of this world. We're not talking about just a break. Instead, we're talking about a new heaven and a new earth filled with all the goodness of God and none of the effects of sin. If you're not looking forward to that day, then I don't think you understand what it will mean. No more sorrow. No more pain. No more death. No more temptation, no more sin. It's going to be a beautiful thing. The eternal fix is eternal life, and it's only found in Jesus Christ. When's it going to happen? I don't know. I just told you no man knows the day nor the hour. I will say we're getting closer to it. Okay, that's a, one of those duh statements too, because again, they thought that, 2,000 years ago in the New Testament church, they thought this was going to happen really soon, probably even within our own lifetimes. Well, now we're 2,000 years later and we're still waiting. We've got to be getting closer. Not to mention we look and we see signs that are taking place and we believe that it can't be much further now. I don't know if it'll be today. I don't know if it'll be 100 years from now, maybe even 1,000 years from now. What I know is this. When that day comes, we must be ready. We need to be patient. Although we don't know when it will happen, I can tell you that it is coming. And according to what Jesus himself said, it will come like a thief in the night. So you must be ready when that day does come. There is another application with this patience thing here in James, though. As we talk about having an enduring faith, the need for patience, and it is that God may not answer your requests when you ask him to. This is simply in keeping with the rest of what we see in our passage today. We're talking about as we bring our needs before him, he may not answer your requests when you ask him. You can be sure that he will show up, but his answer is not always yes. Yes and it is not always now. At times, I've prayed for God to move and then felt slighted when he didn't act as I requested when I requested. How foolish of me. I look at the problems that upcoming generations are facing, and even our own children. There is a sense of entitlement where we feel like we deserve whatever we want. At times, This sense of entitlement, I've had it with God, where I pray for something, and there's almost this sense of, God, you kind of owe me. God, I've been good. I attend church. I give. I serve. Lord, you kind of are entitled. I'm entitled to receive this the truth is, I'm not entitled to anything. (laughs) Enduring faith is one that seeks the Lord, but then is willing to wait upon him regardless of how long it may take. And if he says no, for us to be able to say, your grace is sufficient anyways, I trust you. And enduring faith is one that says, I'm okay with whatever God has for me. I pray that you will have an enduring faith, one that trusts God regardless of what he thinks is best as opposed to what you think is best. Well, as we continue, we now move into one of the most exciting passages in the New Testament. James chapter 5 is a beautiful passage of hope. And in this particular passage, it is the assurance that regardless of how big our need may be, our God is able to do the miraculous that should bring us great encouragement. Look at James 5, 13 to 16. It says, Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power, and produces wonderful results. By the way, I'm reading from the New Living Translation today. Some of these verses sound a little bit different to you. Uh, That last verse, for example, the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That's the way it's worded in the uh, King James Version. Uh, It still means the same thing. It's just worded differently. For the sake of time, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I do want you to see the recipe for powerful faith that will actually make a difference as it's recorded in here. First thing that we see in this is we must pray. You are not able to fix the problems of your world on your own. When you see brokenness around you, the first thing that we ought to do is to pray. A common idea within our culture is for us to try to, even within the church culture, by the way, it is for us to try to do everything possible to fix the problem. And if we can't, when all else fails, then we try God. It doesn't work that way. Actually, if it does, you're spinning your wheels, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your energy. Wouldn't it be better to put it in God's hands first? I've heard individuals say, well, you know, if it's small, I can do it on my own. No, that's that self-sufficiency that we talked about earlier. When you think you can handle it yourself, you're in a very dangerous place. The best place for us to turn is to God first. Are any of you suffering hardships? Any of you dealing with health concerns? Any of you dealing with relationships that are not what they need to be? Are any of you frustrated financially? The best thing for us to do, regardless of what our problem is, is to turn to him. It is always to turn to him. The second thing that we see within this particular passage, not only are we to pray, but we are to call upon others to pray. And to anoint Specifically, in this passage, it talks about calling upon the elders to come and to pray. When I see elders, it's not just about age, but it is about those who are strong in the faith, those who have already been a part of this journey for a while. We need to turn to those who perhaps, man, they've prayed this prayer before. They know that God is powerful and he is effective because they've seen it happen firsthand. There is value in us inviting other people to pray for us. And even to anoint those who are sick and those who are hurting. I have seen the power of God move to bring healing in people's lives. I have experienced it myself. Y'all have heard this before, but in August of 1997, I was playing softball, and in this softball tournament, I was uh, running to catch a fly ball. Uh, I was an outfielder back then because I was faster than I am today. And as I was running to catch this pop-up, the second baseman was in front of me, and I stopped probably, I don't know, probably eight to ten feet behind him because I realized he could catch it. And I saw his He would have been right-handed. So I saw his glove go up, and I'm sitting there watching, and all of a sudden I saw it hit off his glove and pop out. I did what any good outfielder would try to do. I dove to try to get the ball before it hit the ground. I didn't get it. But even more than that, as I dove, I felt something pop in my back. I... Pretended everything was okay. I thought, you know what, I'll just fight it off. It'll be okay. And I ran back out to the outfield. But as I stood there waiting for the next pitch, the pain became so severe, shooting down my legs, I had ruptured a disc in my back. And I had to scream as loud as I could for them to stop the game. And then I had to have people come and carry me off the field because I could not even walk. People who talk about back pain, I used to think they were just big wimps until I had it. <laughs> I remember that night, we went home and I decided, you know, I don't want to go to the hospital. I'm just going to let it take some time to heal. Fortunately, my brother was in town. and About, I don't know, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, the pain got so severe, I had to have him carry me out to the car and we went to the hospital. They said, yes, we've got the MRI. Yes, you have a ruptured disc in your back. There's really not a whole lot that we can do. They gave me some really good pain medicine. just want to say it was really good. I'm very grateful that doctor refused to give me pain medicine afterwards. Only one one, uh, month's worth of pain medicine. I went back to the doctor and talked to him about what we could do to fix it. And his response was, we do have some surgery that can fix it. But this is 1997. He said, truth is, you've probably got about a 50-50 chance that it'll help. And no matter what you do, you'll always have pain in your back and probably in your legs too. And I didn't like those odds. So I went home and decided I'm not doing anything. So I started stretching, doing all those things that I was supposed to do. But no matter what I did, it didn't get better. Come December of that same year, we had traveled back to my mom's home church and... While we were there, I just asked the people to pray for me, because when I got back, I was going to have surgery on my back. By the time we got back, I'm so grateful for the prayers of the church. (laughs) By the time we got back, the pain was completely gone. Within less than a week, I was out running around and acting like I was a 15-year-old kid again, and there was no pain. And I want you to know that there has never again been pain as a result of that injury never again. That is what the power of God looks like when the people of God pray. And I believe today that the same power that was available in the New Testament times, when Jesus told his disciples, you will do even greater things than these, that same power is still available, that God can still perform miracles. I've seen individuals, I've laid hands on people that were supposed to die, and somehow they didn't. Somehow God chose to perform miracles, and I can't explain why sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. That goes back to that patience. He doesn't have to say yes, but he can. So we ought to pray. We ought to ask others to pray, to lay hands, to anoint. Faith-led prayers do lead to healing. The other part of that is in that same passage where it's telling us to have people lay hands on us for healing, it also reveals that faith-led prayers can lead to forgiveness. Often, there is sin that we have allowed to remain in our lives, but the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Some of us, need to be asking our brothers and sisters to pray for us because of not just a physical issue, but sometimes a sin issue. Maybe we've got a loved one who is not in Christ. We ought to be bringing our loved ones before the Lord constantly and asking the Lord to perform miracles in their lives, to change their hearts so that they would recognize a need for Christ above all else. We, we think to pray for them in the moment that they have their temporary need where they've got a physical ailment and they need to be touched, so God help them today. But isn't the eternal need greater than the temporary need? If we've got someone who does not know Christ, that is the need that must be brought before the Lord and even to the church so others can pray as well. Within this, we also see not just that we are to call upon elders to pray and to anoint, but we also see the need for confession. God is not just concerned with the physical. He is concerned with the spiritual. God wants to see things made right between us and others. And finally, the last thing we see in this is the need for earnest prayer. Not talking about the half-hearted, yeah, I'm going to pray for you. And then as a part of our bedtime prayer, we just pray in passing. But the fervent, earnest prayer that says, God, this is the most important thing right now. Our brother and sister is lost to you. Their life is incomplete. The fervent, earnest prayer of a righteous individual is powerful. What kind of burdens do you carry today? that should cause us to pray. What kind of prayers are you offering to God? It is time for us to pray with passion and power. Well, The last thing I want you to see today, the last kind of faith that we see mentioned in our passage, we've talked a little bit about different types of faith. We've talked specifically about uh, misplaced faith, enduring faith, powerful faith. Today, I want us to talk also about saving faith. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Now, I know that there are many people who participate in the ministry of Trinity Wesleyan Church, and many of us have different theological backgrounds. I know one of the core issues that people tend to fight over is whether an individual can ever turn their back on salvation, which God has granted. I will tell you that I can argue for this or I can argue against this using the scripture as my only tool. Because I can probably, I don't mean to say everyone's twisting it, but I can argue using just the portion that I really want. What if the truth is found somewhere between the two? I tell you that as I can argue that, I think sometimes God is far less interested in the argument that we make sometimes. The fact is that good godly people, stand on each side of this issue. However, this passage certainly suggests that believers can walk away from their faith. But my question is, why would someone do such a thing? Why would an individual who has experienced such blessing and such grace, such peace, such promise, knowing That I now have the gift of eternal life waiting for me. Why would I be willing to walk away from that? Perhaps it is associated with what we've already been talking about this morning. Perhaps an individual has struggled with this sense of entitlement. And when they sought God's power, he didn't work in the way that they expected. Perhaps they became disillusioned when God allowed things to happen that we just don't understand. Perhaps they began to doubt whether the day of the Lord's return would ever really come. There are all kinds of possibilities. Perhaps they simply have become so distracted by everything else, they got their eyes fixed on something else as opposed to on Jesus Christ. Regardless of what led a person in this direction, our only hope is to come back to Christ. My hope is that there might be some Solomons in our midst today. Let me explain what I mean by that. You saw, heard me reference uh, a verse from Ecclesiastes earlier in the service. I've been reading from Ecclesiastes quite a bit lately. It is a book full of incredible wisdom. And there are two primary sources of this wisdom. The first is clearly from God. We're told that Solomon specifically asked for wisdom. God told him, I will give you anything you want, and instead of asking for riches, which probably most people would have asked for, he sought wisdom. It's a beautiful gift when you receive wisdom that clearly surpassed that of others around him. Because of that, Solomon was viewed as perhaps the wisest king, specifically because of this blessing. Yet in his wisdom, Solomon still made many poor choices. And it's in those poor choices that we find the second source of wisdom. You see, Solomon talks about the fact that he has tried many things. He tried to find fulfillment in wealth, in women, in partying, in whatever else you want to add. But he continually goes back to the idea that everything is meaningless. Meaningless. It would seem that none of these things satisfied his soul. And then finally, at the conclusion of his book, in Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen, after trying everything else, remember this was a guy who he knew God. He knew the blessing of God. He knew the wisdom of God. Yet he still felt like he needed to try all sorts of other things. At the end of the day, though, in Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen, we read this statement. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. All of the other things that he sought, all the other things that he experienced, it didn't satisfy. It wasn't enough. But you know what? As I stand before God, I find what I need. The fact is, I imagine there are many people who have been a part of the church for many years who can relate to Solomon very well. Maybe there was a point where you surrendered your life to Christ and you began this journey and you started to seek the Lord and you felt such incredible peace and overwhelming sense of joy. Somewhere along the way, you got distracted, you had junk that happened in your life, you had opportunities that you wanted to pursue, and in the midst of all of it, God kind of took a back seat for you. Maybe you can also relate to King David who had to pray Lord restore unto me the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit in me. The only way to fix our brokenness is for us to turn back to God. As we pray We have found such power in our God. And truly, as I look at James chapter 5, we see incredible power over and over again. Power to heal. Power to forgive. We see such incredible grace. Here's the thing. While I know that God has the ability to heal you physically, His greatest desire is also to hear you spiritually. And if you are not right with him, the only place for you to turn is to him. As much as he wants to be this all-powerful, almighty God who lays his hand out and extends his powerful healing, what he really wants is for people to experience not his hands, but his heart. To know him personally. To be in a right relationship with him. We're going to close with a word of prayer. But as we do, I want to ask you a couple of things. I want to be able to pray specifically for you. Some of you today need a physical touch. I want you to know that my God is able. And as we've talked about today, there is power in prayer. There is power in having others pray for you. So whatever your need is, I want you to know there's hope in Jesus Christ. Maybe there are some of you today, actually, why don't y'all bow your heads and close your eyes so nobody's peeking. It's just me and the Lord right now. Maybe some of you need God to move, to heal you of whatever ailment you have. Would you just raise your hand? I want to be able to pray specifically for you. I see hands all over. Thank you. Put them back down. Maybe there are others in here today it's not a physical need, but rather you have stopped pursuing him. And your prayer is, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit within me. The same power is available, the same power for healing, the same forgiveness that God himself can grant. He tells us, call upon the elders of the church to pray. If that's you, would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you. Thank you. Put them back down. Thank you. Father, as we come before you today, well, we know that there is power in your name. There is power that is available to us simply because of who you are. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you would perform miracles. You know the brokenness that each one holds. Some of us today are physically hurting, literally in pain as we sit in a worship service. Father, I pray right now that through the power of God, that healing would take place. Father, I pray that you would touch even that which seems impossible, that the doctors have said there is no hope, there is no way. Lord, I pray that in the name of Jesus Christ, you would heal our bodies. Some of us today are dealing with other kinds of brokenness, Brokenness that seems impossible, but again, we know that nothing is impossible with you. So right now, in this moment, I pray that you would move miraculously, not just so we can be amazed by parlor tricks, your ability to do certain things, but so that we may once again be able to testify to the power of God to do what only God can do. Lord, I pray that you would take our broken marriages, that you would take our broken friendships, that you would take our financial worries and turn them into our Mount Carmel, the place where God showed up and did miraculous things and the name of God was lifted up in that moment. And even for generations to come, Father, I pray right now that you would perform miracles in us. Most of all, today I pray that you would bring forgiveness where we have allowed sin to exist. We confess our sins to you right now, and we ask that you would forgive us, that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness, but not just so that we can continue in our sin, but so that we can leave that sin behind, so that we can be the people of God that you called us to be. Father, I pray today that the power of God would completely transform everything about us. The cells that are broken, the sickness that has plagued us, deliver us from that. But more than that, the sin that has defeated us, I pray that you would overcome it and you would give us victory today. In the power and the name of Jesus Christ, we pray all of these things. Amen. Amen. If you didn't know it today, you serve an almighty, all-powerful God who is able to do abundantly more than you could ever ask or imagine. And I believe today that he desires to bring healing in your life. What will that look like? I don't know. It may be that you still have to endure some of the things that you're dealing with today. The Apostle Paul prayed that his thorn in his flesh would be removed, and God chose not to remove it. God won't always say yes. But I assure you, he is the best hope that you or me or anybody else could ever have. I encourage you to turn to him continually. Thank you for being with us and being a part of our service. Come back next week if you can.